Um, as you may have noted, our theme today is favorites, specifically some of my favorites. It's a luxury I get to have and take advantage of. And I will mention, I didn't make the request, but somebody read my mind on favorites and had the men's quartet here today. I did not know that. Thank you. I always love hearing them. So a number of favorites, and um, to start, uh, I'm going to read the story that is the core subject, the material for today. And let me just check and make sure. I think I have a little timer set here, so I don't go, yeah, hopefully don't go too late. This is an abridged, the Reader's Digest version of the story from the Bible. Very familiar, you will recognize it immediately, um, but again, this is just a short version to kind of get us started. And once there was a man who had two sons. The younger son came to him saying, Father, let me have the share of the estate that should come to me. And he left for a distant land. When he began to feel the pinch and gladly would have filled himself, no one would let him have any of the husks the pigs were eating. So he thought, I will leave this place and say to my father, I no longer deserve to be called your son. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He ran to the boy, hugged and kissed him. The father called out, quick, bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. We must celebrate. But the elder son was angry and refused to come in. The father went out and began to urge him to come. But the brother said, this son of yours comes back after swallowing up your property. And the father replied, My son, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. So today I'd like to use a tool or two, specifically a painting, along with some comments I've collected from various sources, reading, podcasts, YouTube, etc., I am hoping that it will lead us to see something new, maybe add some layers and insights to this well-known story. Can I ask if you can put the picture on the screen and we can dim the lights even further? How many, if any, have seen this picture before? Oh, good, a number. Um, as a poster or a print or maybe in a book of art, has anybody seen it live in gallery, actually visited the museum? Anyone? No? I know a couple people who have seen it. Pardon? We'll come to that. <laughs> so take a look, um, especially if you haven't seen it before. First impressions, obviously father and the returning son. Uh, I'm going to invite you and, and uh, suggest, kind of start at the edges. Specifically, it's hard to see, but there's actually a person back in the background here in the upper left. It's hard to see on this view, but it's, it's almost sometimes if the reproduction, the print, the poster is too dark, you don't even know that that's there. So if you go to find this, 
Google it, whatever. You can find other prints, and it shows up quite well. And we'll actually look at a couple of other views that uh, will show more detail. But there's actually a female uh, character uh, back in the corner. Then there's this person in the middle, the man standing rather stiffly here to the side, gentleman in the middle, and then the father and son, um, the main focus. As you look at this, and just tend to take it in, I would like to share a bit of biography about the artist and the painting. The artist is almost universally known by one name, specifically his first name, but his entire name is Rembrandt Harmanzon von Rhein, born in 1606 in the city of Leiden, Holland, died 1669 in Amsterdam. To put it in a little bit of historical context, again, he's born in 1606. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door, 1517. So just a little under 100 years before. Now, at the time Rembrandt painted and others, religious um, themes, um, things taken from Scripture were still pretty common in art, literature, and music. That obviously is not so true anymore. Another thing I just discovered was, again, now this is a, a kind of, I think, a, a little trivia link here. Rembrandt was born in what city? Leiden? Did anybody, does that ring a bell? Thanksgiving, it's kind of significant. Pilgrims moved from England to Leiden. It's a small city, a university town, west of Amsterdam. He was born in 1606. The pilgrims moved to Leiden, 1607-1608. Kind of interesting. Um, this uh, picture was painted near the end of Rembrandt's life. They estimate about three years before he died. So it would have been painted in 1666. Now this one hit home. He died at age 63. I turned 63 a couple of months ago. Most likely one of his last paintings, and it is frequently seen as a final statement of his life of tumult and torment. For a long time, Rembrandt was like the proud young man who got things together, gathered everything he had, left for a distant country where he squandered his money. As a young man, Rembrandt had all the characteristics of the lost son. He was brash, self-confident, very arrogant. Thirty years later, he painted himself with eyes that penetrate. All biographers describe him as a proud young man, convinced of his own genius and eager to explore everything the world has to offer. He was an extrovert who loved luxury, and was quite insensitive toward those about him. No doubt that one of his main concerns was money. He made a lot, he spent a lot, and he lost a lot. A large part of his energy was wasted in long court cases about financial settlements and bankruptcy proceedings. In his 20s and 30s, his self-portraits reveal a man hungry for fame and adulation fond of extravagant costumes, sporting outlandish hats, including 
berets, helmets, turbans, demonstrating an arrogant character who wasn't simply out to please his sponsors. After this short period of success and popularity and wealth, it was followed by much grief, misfortune, and disaster, losing three children and his wife, followed by failed relationships, loss of another son, finally having a daughter who was the only child who will outlive him. His popularity plummets. Financial problems became so severe that in 1656, approximately 10 years before this was painted, he is declared insolvent and signs over all of his property and effects for the benefit of his creditors to avoid bankruptcy. After a life of conflict and great loss, he has become a poor and lonely man dying in 1669. To look at the prodigal son kneeling before his father, pressing his face against the father's chest, one may see there the once so self-confident and venerated artist who has come to the painful realization that all the glory he gathered for himself has proved to be vain glory. Instead of the rich garments with which he had painted himself when he was younger, even painting himself as the younger son living high in the distant land, he now wears only the under-tunic covering his emaciated body. And the sandals in which he had walked so far have become worn out and useless. At least in some ways, the artist lived a tormented life whose agonizing journey ultimately enabled him to paint this magnificent work. In it, we see the figure of a nearly blind old man holding his son in a gesture of all-forgiving compassion. One must have died many deaths and cried many tears to have painted a portrait of God in such humility. The actual painting is eight feet high, six feet wide, and was acquired by Catherine the Great in 1766. It continues as part of the collection of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. And now if we can go to a couple of other um, closer views of some detail here, you see the, um, see the younger, there's a woman in the background. Um, not much is said about this individual. Uh, I think the, maybe the most insightful uh, comment, Judith thought it might actually be a nod or um, a reminder of his life where he had lived in the distant land. If you look at the detail, it looks like she's wearing some jewelry, uh, an attractive young woman, I think a contemporary age of, of the younger brothers. Um, moving on, there's actually a little painting here uh, in the wall of a flute player, some think that maybe that's possibly a symbol of the coming celebration, honoring the father's joy. Not much is said about this character, um, I've seen various comments. Some describe it as a young boy. I think it's an older woman wearing a hat. I think she's maybe a servant in the household. I'm not sure. Universally, this is seen as the older brother. We'll come back to him with some more detail. He's the one, remember, that said, that son of yours who swallowed up his, your property. Um, which reminded me, when I, when I read that, I said, you know, that reminds me, 
I think about, uh, remember when it said, this woman whom you gave to be with me. And then the woman said, the serpent you made who deceived me. It just reminded me how quickly fallen nature shifts the blame, throws someone else under the bus to protect my, you know, oneself, and, and it soon can, can easily play the victim. And I kind of see that's where the older brother is. And then this character, he's, he's quite interesting. Just kind of note him and his posture, the way he's sitting, especially noting his arms that are at least crossed, but we'll talk about him a little bit more later. Let's go on to another one, Scott, if you're there. So some detail, close up. I'm gonna mention this here because I don't wanna forget, but often it is observed, note the difference in the hands. This one is broader, the fingers are thicker. Uh, some people speculate that he's portraying a masculine hand in, his, in the father's left hand. And this hand has this fingers are more delicate and slender. And the suggestion is that he's showing a father and a mother being portrayed in the character of the father um, embracing his son. Um, okay, let's go on to another one, really close up again of the hands. Really note too the portrayal of the son's head his head is shaved. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, some significant. I was thinking, you know, it would have been really uh, interesting to me to have notes or a diary. I don't know of anything that Rembrandt left behind where he explained what he was thinking. And then I thought, you know, that's probably actually a better thing not to have because if we knew his thoughts and what he intended, I would think that would almost be limiting. This one, everybody sees things a little differently, and, and you can kind of take it in your own direction. I think there's maybe one more, and then we'll go back. This, the feet. This sandal's off. This sandal is on, but barely. They both have had a long, um, probably too long of a life. And then um, I think maybe we come back to the, to the main picture again. And we'll just leave that one there. Thank you. Notice the light around the two figures, which draws us to the intimacy in contrast to the four mysterious bystanders who all represent different ways of not getting involved. And I'm okay if you leave the lights down. If anybody falls asleep, I won't see them. <laughs> and that's okay. If I fall asleep, you won't. Okay. Um, the four mysterious bystanders who all represent different ways of not getting involved. There is indifference, curiosity, daydreaming, attentive observation. There is staring, gazing, watching, looking, standing in the background, leaning against an arch, sitting with arms crossed, standing with hands, gripping each other. I think it's helpful to keep in mind the context in which Jesus tells the story of the man and his two sons. Luke explains that the tax collectors and sinners were crowding around to listen to Jesus. And who complained? The Pharisees and the scribes, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They question his legitimacy as a teacher by criticizing his closeness to sinful people. He responds by telling the three lost parables. And maybe now is the best time to mention 
for much of Christian history, this parable was very closely linked to another parable, the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go up to the temple to pray, as recorded in Luke 18. Consider again the man in the middle, well-dressed, wearing a pretty, pretty nice hat, and his arms are across his chest, and I think there's more to that than just being crossed. He's possibly an official or an honored member of the household and community. He's described as, in fact, can you see that hand? It's not just folded. He's got it up. And some think that he's actually portraying that he's beating his chest. What does the tax collector who goes to the temple to pray, what does he do while he's praying? He beats his chest. And the standing man, the elder son, reminds us possibly of the scribes and Pharisees who said, Lord, thank you that I am not like all those others. This painting in these parables may help us summarize the great spiritual battle and the great choices that this battle demands. As we look to apply this parable, who does the lost son, the prodigal, represent? Almost always we say each of us is lost, fallen, far away in a distant land with the greatest need to go home. Now don't raise your hand for this, but does anyone besides me see that your personal story is actually more closely resembling the older brother who doesn't leave home? And I was quite, well, it wasn't that long ago, let me just put it that way, when that really hit and sank in. I am more like the older brother. I was the one who wanted to be stay safe, be close to home, not take the risks, not wander too far away, seeking to be obedient, trying to be responsible. I now realize I could be just as lost as a younger son, especially if I'm jealous, angry, resentful, and self-righteous. Certainly the artist lived a life marked by great self-confidence, success, success, fame, followed by many painful losses and disappointments and failures. The elder son is also part of Rembrandt's and our life experience. He is as much the elder son of the parable as he was the younger. Both experienced lostness. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home both to experience their father's embrace of forgiveness and compassion. Some comments specifically about the elder brother. He shows condemnation, prejudice, judgment, frozen anger is a term that was used to describe him. While focusing on remaining obedient and avoiding sin. We should see that staying home sometimes may be more spiritually damaging and the hardest conversion. The lostness of the elder son is much harder to identify. He stayed home, but on the inside he had wandered away from his father. Outwardly faultless, when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts. 
Was he willing to confess that he was no better than his brother? There are many elder sons and daughters who are lost while still at home. And so it is suggested the title should more accurately be the parable of the lost sons, plural. By the way, do you note in the story, especially of the elder brother, that joy is not compatible with resentment. They cannot coexist in the same person. As long as he's resentful, he will not experience the joy that the father is inviting him to share. And now for the younger brother, a little more. More than wishing that his father was dead, he's actually saying, I can't wait for you to die. There's a demand that is still in some parts of the world worthy of beating if a son were to ask the father to dispose of his property in that way. In fact, I've even wondered if it might be considered something that would race to the level of being worthy of an honor killing to protect the family name. We hear that sometimes. The son's leaving is actually much more offensive than it may seem at first. It is a heartless rejection of the home in which the son was born, nurtured, and a break with the most precious traditions carefully upheld by the larger community of which he was part. When Luke writes, and left for a distant country, he's indicating much more than simply the desire to go and see more of the world. This is a drastic way of cutting loose from the way of living, thinking, and acting that has been handed down as a sacred legacy. This is more than disrespect. It is a betrayal of the treasured values of family and community. Looking at the sun again, traditionally when a man's hair was shaved, he was robbed of one of the marks of his individuality, his personhood. He has no cloak, therefore no protection from the elements and harsh realities of the world. His sandals and exposed feet tell a story of a long and humiliating journey. Bare feet indicate poverty and often enslavement. Shoes are for the wealthy and the powerful. Shoes offer protection. They give safety and strength. For many poor people, getting shoes is a benchmark passage. The left foot is exposed and scarred. The right foot with broken sandal also speak of suffering and misery. This is a young man dispossessed of virtually everything. In Matthew 18, Jesus explains that we must experience a new childhood in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in his conversation with Nicodemus, he spoke of being reborn. If you think back and you take a closer look at the sun, the returning son's head, can you see how some have come to describe it as the head of an infant? Do you see the rebirth, the second childhood, possibly portrayed by this? It's even been suggested this may represent the eternal son becoming a child, he left his father's house, came to a foreign country, gave away all he had. He voluntarily dressed himself as though he had been abandoned by his father. He lived a long and painful journey. The young man being embraced by the father is no longer just one repentant sinner, but the whole of humanity returning to God. The broken body of the prodigal becomes a broken body of humanity, 
And the infant-like face of the returning child becomes the face of an all-suffering people. Rembrandt's painting may be more than a mere portrayal of a moving parable. It becomes a summary of the history of estrangement and restoration. Do you see that the embrace of being welcomed home is also an invitation to grow, to become a father or mother, to become more and more like the father? Yes, Jesus explained our need to become like children, but he does not instruct us to remain a child. Whether we are the younger or the elder, son or daughter, we should realize that we are called to become the father. To be a father, mother, who can claim for oneself the authority of true compassion, overcoming the desire to remain a child and never grow old. This enables us to taste the immense joy of children coming home, laying hands on them of forgiveness and blessing, asking no questions, wanting only to welcome our children home. About the father, it is stated in this story and the painting that the entire gospel may be seen here. Where the father embraces his kneeling son, it is a place of light, truth, and love. It is the place that may confront us with the fact that truly accepting love, forgiveness, and healing is often much harder than giving it. The place beyond earning, deserving, and rewarding. The place of surrender and complete trust. And we've already talked about the Father's hands. This painting can be a window through which we may step into the kingdom of God. It shows us the place where we are held safe in the embrace of the all-loving Father who knows and calls each of us by name. A place where God has chosen to dwell. A place where he says, you are my beloved. On you my favor rests. I am especially fond of you. It is the affirmation of Jesus' call to make our home in him as he made his home in us. It is an invitation to kneel before the Father put our ear to his chest and listen without interruption to the heartbeat of God, to hear his call into the inner sanctuary where God has chosen to dwell, and a call to share God's invitation to look at people and this world through his eyes. The immense joy in welcoming back the lost son hides the immense sorrow that has gone before. The finding has losing in the background. Real loneliness comes when we have lost all sense of having things in common. When no one would allow him even the food he was giving the pigs, he realized he wasn't even considered a fellow human being. He was lost, had lost his humanity. But whatever he had lost, the reality, the truth is that he still remained his father's child. Home is the center of where we can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. The same voice that gave life to Adam and spoke to Jesus. The same voice that speaks to all the children of God and sets them free to live in the midst of a dark world while remaining in the light. 
Faith is a radical trust that home has always been there and always will be there. The somewhat stiff hands of the Father rest on the prodigal shoulders with the everlasting divine blessing. You are my beloved. On you my favor rests. The world, the distant land, has many other voices that are loud, full of promises, misleading, offering an empty substitute to the Father's voice. These voices say, go out and prove that you are worth something. They reach into our inner places where we question our own goodness and doubt our self-worth. They suggest we are not going to receive the blessing of his love without earning it through determined efforts and hard work. These counterfeit voices deny that his acceptance, his compassion, are totally free gifts. We, live home, we leave home every time we lose faith in his voice calling, inviting, and welcoming us. Leaving home, then, is much more than a single historical event bound to a time and place. It is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God, that God holds me safe in his eternal embrace. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned me in secret, molded me, knitted me together. Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. Because of sin, we struggle with our sense of security, significance, and self-worth. In their place, we experience insecurity, insignificance, and inferiority. We are the prodigal every time we search for acceptance, for unconditional love, in places it cannot be found. We do this when we take the gifts he has given and use them to try to impress others, to receive affirmation and praise, compete for rewards instead of developing them for God's glory. It's almost as if we want to prove to ourselves and to the world that we do not need God and his love, that we can make a life on our own, and that we want to be independent. Beneath it all is the great rebellion, the radical no to the Father's love, the unspoken curse, I wish you were dead. The prodigal son's no reflects Adam's original rebellion, his rejection of God in whose love we were created and by whose love we are sustained. It is the rebellion that places us outside the garden, the first sanctuary, out of the reach of the tree of life. It is the rebellion that leads to and deepens our brokenness in a distant land. As we look at the return, we may now see much more taking place than a mere gesture of compassion toward a wayward child. The great event may be seen as the end of the great rebellion. The rebellion of Adam and all his descendants. We now see that these hands have always been outstretched, even, in, even when there were no sh shoulders for them to rest upon. God has never pulled back his arms. He's never withheld his blessings, never stopped considering his children to be his beloved. But the father could not compel his son to stay home. He couldn't force his love. He had to let him go in freedom, even though he knew the pain it would cause both his son and himself. It was love itself that prevented him from keeping his son at all costs, allowing him to let his son Find his own life even at the risk of losing it. And here is a mystery of life unveiled. 
We are loved so much, we are left free to leave home. We may have left and we may keep on leaving, but the Father is always looking for us with outstretched arms to receive us back. We are his beloved upon whom his favor rests. When I started to prepare for this, I had a couple of goals in sharing this. First goal, I was hopeful that at least one person this morning would be able to honestly say, well, at least this wasn't a complete waste of time. There's an Air Force motto or slogan, you may have seen it in some of their ads, that says, aim high. But if you lower your expectations enough, you're bound to achieve them. Then I realized my goal was actually more. It was actually to share something that continues to impact me, and specifically my picture of God, my understanding of his character. Also, I hope when you read or hear about this parable in the future, and that's bound to happen, or if you're so lucky and you get to visit St. Petersburg, Russia before I do, that you will hear this story with new ears, that you will see it with new eyes, I am convinced there is still much more good news there. As I reviewed and reread my sources, my goals increased. Has anyone else noticed more and more chaos in the world? I am convinced that much of what is going on is actually designed to condition us and get us used to believing lies. Little lies to begin with. Lies about ourselves, about the nature of the human condition, where we get our meaning, our sense of purpose, and our significance. Then bigger lies to follow. So I hope this parable and this painting will serve as a reminder. Don't fall for the lie. God is faithful. He is worthy of our trust. We can go home again. We are always welcome. He can hardly wait. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may our time that we have spent here, this brief time, be a motivator for each of us to give greater consideration, greater realization of who you are, your great compassion, how you welcome any and all, no matter how far we may have wandered, no matter how close we may have stayed. For we're reminded that the rebellion started in your very presence when your most exalted creature started sharing lies. Help us not to fall for the lies in the world around us. Help us to keep our eyes on you and the picture that Jesus came and lived and shared that is the clearest revelation of who you are. We thank you for that. Please go with us now today. Be with us Grant us safety that we may come back again. And as we are apart from each other, may we share the best picture that we can possibly imagine of who you are with those we come in contact with. For all these things and so much more, 